and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, defending the classical liberal constitution. So Richard, there is a review out recently in the New Republic of your most recent book, The Classical Liberal Constitution by your former University of Chicago colleague, Cass Sunstein. And this review has gotten a lot of attention. And he, of course, comes from a very different point of view than you do. And today we're going to give you a chance to respond to some of the critiques, tease out the differences between the two of you. And we should note here that this isn't a personal dispute. You all get along fine. And in typical faculty lounge fashion, this is about ideas. So uh, let's start with the, the associations that are drawn here. Professor Sunstein writes in the piece, quote, Epstein is far too independent-minded to lead or follow any ideological movement. But if Tea Party constitutionalism has academic roots or a canonical set of texts, they consist of Epstein's writings. More than anyone else, he has elaborated the view that our constitution is libertarian in the sense that it sharply restricts the power of the national government and against both the nation and the states creates strong rights-based protections of private property and freedom of contract. And, and later there's this passage. Everyone knows who Rand Paul's father is, but in an intellectual sense, it is Richard Epstein who is his daddy. Well, Daddy <laughs> Epstein – um, it's a very complicated situation because when you start looking on the general political spectrum, uh, the differences between the hardline libertarian and the classical liberal are eclipsed by the difference between those two on the one side and all of the progressive movements sitting on the far other side. And in the middle, they used to be, but there's much less of it now, a, a group of what I would have called conservative Democrats who are basically market-oriented with respect to production, but socially liberal on such issues as abortion and generally modest supporters of a welfare state, but careful about not taking it too far. Sunstein sort of moves between the last two groups. Sometimes he's a kind of a centrist, as I think he is on some environmental issues, but on other things like, for example, on gay rights and abortions, I think he's out there with the left wing of the party. Uh, it's also a question of differences as to where we come from. I am not, by full-time training a constitutional lawyer, which is something that Sunstein points out and rightly so. I have taught the subject. I've written it extensively because I do it in all sorts of other courses. It's not just, as he mentioned in the review, uh, that I do contracts, property, and torts, but when you do courses like criminal procedure and labor law and telecommunications law and the FDA and the environmental law and administrative law, they all have very heavy constitutional components in them. And indeed, you can't understand them unless you do constitutional Constitution. So I come to the Constitution two different ways, as a sort of limited government common lawyer type, and also as somebody who teaches common law, rather constitutional law as an adjunct to uh, various other kinds of issues, but not as a subject in itself. I'm also, I think this is another difference, I am not a creature of the beltway in any way, shape, or form. Cass worked for the Office of Legal Counsel. He clerked for the United States Supreme Court. Um, the only time I go to Washington is to give speeches, sometimes to the Cato Institute, which is there for reasons that have little to do with its big government policies, but it has to be near the seat of power. 
So I come from very different situations, have a much more of a commercial practice and orientation and so forth. And what that tends to do is to push you more in favor of close reading of particular text and to sort of worry about how a country like a corporation or a business can go astray if it doesn't manage to keep its basic positions in line. So to give you but one concrete illustration, I spend a lot of time talking about what it means to uh, deal with the power to tax for the general welfare of the United States, to spend for that general welfare of the United States. And I think of this as a kind of a corporate situation in which the effort to raise money from states and from the state citizen has to always be worried, measured against the question as to whether or not you could keep the union stable or whether or not there's going to be massive transfer payments across states. Or the modern view, which CAS tends to support, is, you know, it's just all money. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Politics will decide who contributes and who takes out of it. Uh, so when you have those kinds of differences, I'm going to be in favor of fairly sharp limits on what the federal government can do, um, both structurally on the one hand and in terms of individual rights on the other. And he's going to care much less about that stuff, thinking that judicial intervention will come on the kinds of social issues like punishment, abortion, same-sex marriage, and the like. Richard, you anticipated a few moments ago something I was going to ask you, which is this argument that Sunstein never quite uses it as a cudgel. In fact, in some ways, he's complimentary of it. But he does go out of his way, as you mentioned, to paint you as a non-specialist in constitutional law. And let me read the passage for the audience. He writes, Epstein is steeped not in American constitutional law but in Anglo-American common law. It provides the foundations for his thinking and it animates much of what he writes on the constitution. He says later, when Epstein comes to constitutional law, he is in a sense a stranger in a strange land. First of all, what do you make of that assertion? But second of all, are there advantages, are there benefits to coming at it from that different angle? Well, the second question is surely easy. Um, uh, to take a 88th traditional lawyer as opposed to the first iconoclast, you're clearly going to make much greater of an impact and be much more important than in a field if you bring to it a fresh and different perspective. And indeed, this sort of collective view that, oh, I'm an eccentric and so forth, I regard that as just simply one person saying, I don't have to figure out what's wrong with this because everybody else happens to agree with me. Right. And in fact, one of the things that's striking about the Sunstein Review is when the question comes is, well, which of the particular pieces of textual interpretation that I offer forward are wrong? He just punts on that question and doesn't give a single illustration of an argument that I make which he thinks to be um, incorrect. So uh, it's clear under these circumstances I think that there are all sorts of advantages in doing it in this particular way. Um, the question of being a non-specialist also has other things, which is constitutional law is derivative upon private law in a way that people don't understand. Uh, so after the New Deal, it's no question that the disconnect is very profound. Uh, but I spend a lot of time working on and teaching, for example, courses that deal with 19th century American constitutional law. And in that particular setting, knowing the private law origins gives you a much better fit to the way in which those judges are thinking uh, than does an awareness of 20th century constitutional law. So what happens is if you ignore the common law origins on this stuff, the progressive um, synthesis seems to be much more coherent than it does if you take this seriously into account. And there's no question that the progressives began in large part by the repudiation of these common law baselines with respect to uh, the operations in question. So uh, what I would say is if you're trying to do an overall um, 
evaluation of the system. You have to know both. I know the earlier one, and believe me, by virtue of constant exposure, I'm certainly well aware of what modernists think. I think the point is on the other side. Most modern American constitutional lawyers do not teach or teach well or teach enthusiastically all the various private law courses. You know, this book took years to write. It's the fourth book I've written on constitutional law. I've probably written another 50 or 60 articles on the same subject. I may not teach it, but it certainly is something to which I have brought an enormous amount of attention. Uh, So I think, in effect, that the person who knows the other guy is going to feel that's going to be better off than the one who doesn't. It's roughly like the Catholic theologian, more comfortable arguing with the Marxist if he's actually read Marx. And that's the way in which I feel. I've actually worked on both sides of this particular agenda, and I'm quite comfortable with the modern theory and think it's in many cases stunningly weak, precisely because it doesn't address the standard common law objections about all these efforts to collectivize various kinds of choices on the assumption that somehow or other if we all make collective decisions uh, by majority rule, it's going to be better off than a system in which the central government makes relatively few decisions and the vast bulk of economic productivity takes place not by majority rule and political faction, but takes place by unanimous consent. There's an argument running through this piece, Richard, that I'll do my best to summarize on Sunstein's terms because it it takes too long to sort of accurately quote it. He essentially says, Richard doesn't think that you can just look to the text to understand the Constitution. You have to look at the theory that animates it. And his objection is that the theory you settle on coming out of the classical liberal tradition cannot be said uncontroversially anyway to be the theory that the founders were actually using. So let let me quote a little bit of this here. He writes, for lawyers and judges, the broader point is that the general theory cannot be found in the constitution itself. We might doubt moreover that as Epstein elaborates it, it would have commanded any kind of 18th century consensus. Without detailed historical support, it remains unclear what it means to say that Epstein's preferred general theory animates the text. Okay, in in essence, Richard Epstein is reading the Constitution the way that Richard Epstein would have written the Constitution. And and the author himself responds how? Well, I think the first thing is I think it's just completely wrong. I mean, there are huge numbers of texts there, and it's very clear if you go back to these folks, uh, they are very heavily influenced by the classical theory of the time, none of which has the slightest elements of the uh, a modern progressive states. If you go back, for example, and you read the disputes between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, both of them are strong defenders of property rights. Both of them believe in limited government, and their debate is one of means over the particular way to achieve it. Do we want the extended state or do we want a limited state? Uh, do we think that we have to put into the Constitution specific protections in the Bill of Rights to protect property and contract, or do we think that the structure itself is going to be there? Um, you could say, in effect, that there are multiple theories around there, uh, but you have to look very long and hard to find anything in the original text that comes remotely close to what's going on. Look, I have no question that I have a fairly strong political theory which I bring to this subject matter, uh, but it pops out in virtually every place in which you look at this document. Um, the separation of powers is surely a device of limited government. Indeed, it was exactly that that people like Woodrow Wilson in the 19th century attacked because it prevented professive ideals from being put into place. The protection of property rights, the protection of contract rights, the protection of religious liberties are all in there. Uh, the basic notion that there's a welfare right in the federal constitution cannot be found anywhere. In fact, uh, when Catherine Dinkin Bowler wrote about this thing years 
ago, she said, well, all the questions of welfare are just left to the states as if there's no federal function whatsoever there. Uh, you have to show an effect. Um, what that alternative theory is and link it up. And what's striking about the Sunstein Review and indeed most of the critic is they put this up as an abstract proposition, but they don't cite chapter and verse of those particular passages which they think support their position. Now, there are some ironies. Uh, natural law theory is not prominent in the Constitution, but it's very prominent in the period. But there's a reason for that. The Constitution is not an organization of individuals in the state of nature. It's an organization of states trying to form a larger union. Uh, so uh, working back to nature red in tooth and claw is not really part of their situation. If you want to see some of the references, a recent article that will soon come out by my friend Stephen Calabresi, who reads this stuff uh, to the point, has thousands of references. If you look at the Massachusetts Constitution or the Virginia Declaration of Rights, you can see it. Cass at one point contrasts me with Ronald Dworkin, and that's what Dworkin does. He is very indifferent with respect to historical searches and has this large, diffuse normative theory that he imposes upon text, and his attitude is our job is to pick the best moral theory. I think that's certainly true when we're doing political and moral philosophy, but in this particular case, it's just point after point where the correspondence is more or less the way in which I stated, and there are, of course, striking deviations from that dealing with the issues concerning slavery, uh, I make no bones that 100% of the doctrine is there, but I don't think for modern purposes you're worried about fugitive slave clauses on the one hand or the three-fifths on the other. And if you look at the provisions that are operative and if you look at the way in which, for example, strongly protected rights are treated like speech and you know, like the uh, dormant commerce clause, they're all essentially government has the power to regulate in order to control against force, in order to control against fraud, in order to protect health, in order to protect against safety in order to provide for collective goods. That's the classical liberal theory, and that's exactly the way these provisions read. Final question, Richard, and it's the practical one. One of the final criticisms that Sunstein Levels runs as follows, quoting again, most judges want their decisions to fit with precedent. Epstein is fully aware that on this count his approach fares poorly, and so he has to answer a genuinely hard question about how to treat precedents with which he disagrees. And then later on, quoting again, he is asking his fellow citizens and the fallible human beings who populate the federal judiciary to jettison many decades of constitutional law on the basis of a general theory that the Constitution does not explicitly encode and that the nation has long rejected. End quote. Okay. This is not an argument with which you're unfamiliar because oh, no, there it comes up all yeah. Well, there are a lot of areas where your views, of course, do cut against, in, in some cases, decades worth of jurisprudence depending on the field. So my question, what do you expect or maybe desire is the better word? Sunstein calls this in his closing sentence a judicially engineered constitutional revolution. Is that what you're calling for? Well, I mean, first of all, let's make it very clear that people on the left call for many constitutional revolutions of their own. Uh, if you're trying to figure out what the single most dramatic revolution is in modern times, it's the ability to force into the helpless equal protection clause all the case with respect to same-sex marriage, for which there is not an iota of either structural support in the Constitution or historical support in the Constitution. And indeed, when Cass defends that, he starts saying, well, you know, you've got to look at these sort of values of dignity which are inherent in 
Canadian constitution, even if they're nowhere mentioned, and that drives you to that conclusion. But the people on the other side of that issue would say, what makes these judges so infallible so as to say, uh, looking at this particular text, that same-sex marriage ought to be an enshrined constitutional right when the history of American constitutionalism is that there is an enormous level of judicial deference to the state on morals matter. You could do the same thing with cruel and unusual punishment. That kind of a revolution has taken place. Uh, you certainly go back to the abortion cases and that takes place. Brown v. Board is exactly the same kind of decision. You can agree with these or disagree with them, but I don't think you could simply say on the one hand uh, that we really believe in this sort of unvarnished version of um, majoritarianism. If we did, in effect, then all these decisions would have to go the way because you know these judges are every bit as fallible as everybody else. Um, the other point that I would make is, you know, both the classical liberals and the progressives are fairly keen on some judicial interventions. Protection of freedom of speech is certainly one. Protection of the general common market through the dormant commerce clause would surely be another. So it's not as though uh, we're on opposite sides with respect to every kind of issue. Uh, so everybody is doing this at some level. And to sort of come forward at the end of this thing and talk about we the people and all this deference um, simply misstates what the progressive agenda is. Every sound person has to figure out where political power begins and where political power ends. When I write about the takings clause, for example, I'm perfectly clear that when it comes to the question of who initiates a public project of one kind or another, the Constitution has nothing to say about that. But when it comes to the question of whether or not you could do it without just compensation or whether or not the project counts as one that is for a public use, uh, the Constitution explicitly addresses those kinds of questions. So that gives you a division of authority. Um, there is, to put it in the most blunt and forceful way that you could possibly imagine, no corner solution which says that fallible judges ought to do nothing and informed legislatures ought to do everything. Uh, we have always had this particular split. The last complication is what do you do about past error on constitutional interpretation? You know, put the year back to 1954, and now you have to ask, well, what are you going to do to decide Brown v. Board of Education? And, you know, John W. Davis, who argued that case for the South, made exactly the same kinds of arguments that Cass is making now. You have these established practices and folks ways. How dare you start to intervene? And I might also add, I think people who studied this closely realize that the textual case uh, for Brown v. Board is extraordinarily weak and that what's really happening here is there is a wide sense and justified sense on the part of judiciary uh, that the political situation has become so totally imbalanced um, given corruption force and the voting restrictions that they have to intervene to override these kinds of things. The issues I'm talking about like zoning and so forth have very similar political dimensions to them. The only difference is that a much smaller a weight and significance. So if you had to get the zoning stuff right or Brown v. Board right, you'd certainly want to go with Brown v. Board as your first point of intervention. Uh, but even the rectification issue is one you have to face, in my view, is, and I think it holds pretty well, uh, those particular judicial innovations that are consistent with classical liberal positions, uh, like Brown v. Board, I would say, um, and getting rid of state-sponsored apartheid in education, those are the ones that ought to last, whereas cases like Plessy v. Ferguson, which run in the opposite direction, Direction, those are the ones that ought not to last so that 58 years after that case comes down, it's perfectly okay uh, to overrule it. 
So that, I think, is the way in which one does this. There is no easy victory which allows you to cast the other fellow as the man who wants to despoil tradition. It turns out that the virtues and vices of that tradition are shared pretty much by everybody. All right, Richard. Thank you as always and thanks to everybody listening. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. You can buy the book we've been talking about, The Classical Liberal Constitution, The Uncertain Quest for Limited Government, and you can follow Richard on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.